I'm sitting here with Chris Tyra, the head of Fidelity Digital Assets here in Europe, sitting in Alpbach in Tyrol, in the mountains. Hi, Chris. Hi there. How are you doing? Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for coming to Alpbach. We're going to have a talk on Bitcoin tomorrow. Yeah. Um, is it good or bad that it exists? Um, maybe we start with, with uh, you know, the answer. Is it good or bad that it exists? Uh, Bitcoin or crypto? Let's start with Bitcoin. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I think absolutely it's good that it exists. I mean, the way that we, so we at Fidelity view Bitcoin pretty separate and distinct from other crypto assets. Um, I think that Bitcoin has really carved out its use case as a store of value. I think that it has reached uh, significant network effects now. And you can look at this in terms of you know, hash power dedicated to a, a number of coins that are, or the marketplace that are, that is looking to solve this particular use case. And it is, you know, 95% plus. So I think that Bitcoin has certainly carved out its use case. And I think that, you know, there's, um, we were talking about this just before we turned the mics on, but, um, uh, you know, in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, you know, he talks about, um, he talks about how uh, in order to get some monopolistic pricing in any kind of technology, you, you almost need to have a 10x improvement over it any of its competitors. And I think with Bitcoin, you know, we've demonstrably seen that. You know, if you look at the characteristics of of sound money and stores of value, um, you know, they are divisibility, uh, uniformity, durability, uh, acceptability, and portability. And if you look at those characteristics, Bitcoin really is pretty exceptional relative to gold and other stores of value in all but one, and that is acceptability. And, you know, that's not surprising. Bitcoin, you know, the, the Genesis block was in January 2009. I mean, we're talking about an asset that's just over 13 years old relative to gold, which has been used as a store of value going back to prehistoric times. And so I think that there's some work to do there. But when we look at the overall characteristics of, of Bitcoin and how that stands up as a potential store of value in the future, um, it's pretty clear to us that it stands a very, very good chance of occupying significant market share with traditional stores of value going forward. Fidelity has been in the Bitcoin and crypto space for years now. It's yep. one of the biggest, well-known, you know, household brands from the U.S. Um, it's basically a family-run company. That's right. Yeah. Could you could you um, tell us a bit about Fidelity? Sure. So uh, there's two distinct um, there's two distinct businesses. There's Fidelity uh, Investments, which is the U.S.-based business, and that's the business uh, that Fidelity Digital Assets rolls up into. Uh, there's then Fidelity International, which is all business outside of the U.S. Uh, in terms of product issuance. Uh, they're both owned by the Johnson family. Um, uh, and, you know, Abigail Johnson is the CEO and chairwoman of Fidelity Investments. Uh, and she's the chairwoman of Fidelity International. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, for me, I spend the majority of my career working for uh, working for investment banks. And, you know, certainly in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, There was this you know, incessant push from regulators to try and steer banks away from uh, short-termism. And it was interesting for me coming to work for a family-led company because the, the duration over which opportunities and investments are evaluated is measured in years. And, you know, going back to my former life, that really would be measured in months. If you're going to make an investment, it's how many months is it until we can recoup this investment? And so the cycle was really compressed um, you know, far more than uh, it is at Fidelity, for example. And I think that's really owing to that ownership structure. It's really not about trying to move, um, you know, performance or quarterly earnings or returns in order to move the share price higher so that 
you know, a group of uh, the executives uh, might be able to cash out on some stock options. You know, this really is about capital preservation and long-term value accrual. And it's a very different mindset when it comes to investing. The other thing that, you know, I would say is that Fidelity has a really very long, rich history of technology innovation. Um, and, you know, we have a, a research group that exists within Fidelity called the Fidelity Center of Applied Technology. And this really is a uh, an experimental technology research group. And so there are um, there's a artificial intelligence unit, there's a quantum computing unit. And importantly, there isn't a sort of research focus that demands that um, the, you know, any kind of calories expended on researching these technologies uh, can be can be transformed into value add for the fidelity businesses. You know, this really is exists really just to sort of put fidelity in a position that understands interesting emerging technology. And so back in 2015, we were in a period when global securities were moving from a, uh, a T3 to a T2 basis. And the question was asked at, at the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, we're mo- moving from T3 to T2. We'll go from T2 to T1. We'll go from T1 to T0. You know, can we envision an infrastructure layer that would enable that type of settlement cycle? And is there anything that we could be re- researching now in order to give us uh, an advantage if such a transition were to occur? And blockchain technology was put forward back then, way back then in 2015, as being a potential replacement infrastructure layer for traditional legacy uh, financial assets. Um, And so, you know, Fidelity has been mining Bitcoin consistently since 2015. And again, you know, I'm sure you remember this. Back then, that was very much the days of blockchain, not Bitcoin. You know, blockchain was seen as this real innovation and Bitcoin was this failed first experiment. And obviously the the narrative has changed somewhat around that now. Uh, But very importantly, this research group was given a mandate to research not only private chains, which were very de rigueur at the time, but public chains as well, and Bitcoin being the, the most prominent. Um, and Fidelity came out a couple of months ago with, with a paper called Bitcoin First. That's right. Which was, which was um, you know, very well liked by, by the so-called Bitcoin maximalists because, well, it said Bitcoin First. It said, it said, <laughs> right. it, yes. it said, it said you know, look at Bitcoin um, and don't compare it to the other stuff, which is something we should all do. You know, we should not be, you know, fighting on Twitter all day long um, yep. um, about crypto, not Bitcoin, whatever. Um, but you said something is the blockchain, not Bitcoin, um, yeah. Bitcoin thing. I mean, this is still around. I, can, I still read this blockchain, not Bitcoin thing, but it's it's so old by now. I, I don't even know what it means anymore. I mean, do you... Um, do you see in, in your daily life, um, do you in, in your daily work life, do you see people realizing that it might be the other way around, that Bitcoin might be the main the main innovation here? Uh, I think that, P- yeah, I mean, I think that digitally native assets, I'd say that people are um, definitely coming to, I, I would say that it extends beyond Bitcoin just in terms of what we see. I think that that was probably the case in sort of mid to, mid 2020. I mean, bear in mind, you know, Again, thinking back to that time, we were coming out of the global pandemic. We were seeing massive, um, you know, central bank uh, printing of money around the world. We were starting to see, you know, enormous uh, fiscal spending by governments around the world, which again was a, a sort of natural and necessary response to to prevent, um, you know, economic collapse. I think that you know people saw that and 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 very much lent into the Bitcoin narrative. Not only can we, uh, you know, get access to a scarce asset and one that could offer venture-like returns just owing to the fact that it's still very immature in its in its adoption. Um, but I think since then, 
um, you know, we've really started to see a shift where people looking at the whole universe of, of crypto assets as being interesting technology that they want to explore. But I think that we, d- we definitely have seen this transition away from private chains. And I'm not, that's not to say that there, there isn't valuable innovation there and that we, you know, there is no use case for, for private chains. It's just more and more of the uh, interest that we see is, is on the public side. So what would be a private chain? Yeah, you know, Hyperledger Fabric, R3 Quarter. Okay. Okay. So like okay, something that's run by a company. Exactly. You said Fidelity came into this with two main questions. What could be the new base layer technology for the financial system basically? And yeah. what and, and the second thing is like the, the whole fabric of the company is about long-term wealth preservation. Mm-hmm. And to both um, questions, Bitcoin could be an answer. Um, but If I hear this correctly, it started more with the with the first one, with the with the network, not so much with the asset. Yeah, I, th- I mean, you know, bear in mind this is 2015, and and Fidelity is really just trying to at that point understand the technology. So we were running, um, you know, a whole load of different experiments. You know, at one point you could pay for your cafeteria lunch in Boston with Bitcoin. Um, you know, and that was really uh, to understand merchant services. It wasn't really to try and drive <laughs> the employees to. Um, you know, start spending Bitcoin to, to pay for that lunch. It was really, you know, how does, how does this work? You know, I, the, and, and one of the first things we did, as I say, was to start mining Bitcoin. How does the protocol work? How does the process of mining work? And so I think all of these things, you know, I think the, 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 there has certainly been an evolution on our side in terms of, um, you know, how we see the technology playing a role, how we see Bitcoin playing a role going forward. Um, but I would say that, you know, certainly back at that point in time, it was, um, you know, it was foundational learning. Because today I could, if I was an American, I could invest in my 401k, I, I, I could put Bitcoin in there, right? So the, so uh, right now, so that is a product that we announced a couple of months ago. So that will go live with the first client in October of this year. So yes, that is true. So uh, we announced um, a couple of months ago the uh, for our workplace investing business, which is the business that, um, that runs the retirement plans for corporations uh, across the U.S., Uh, we were releasing a product that would allow um, plan sponsors to give employees access to physical Bitcoin through their plans. So you would be able to invest 401k assets into physical Bitcoin. And that that is a, the first time that's been offered. And physical Bitcoin means um, you hold them as a custodian. Correct. You, mean, you know, this might be a coincidence, but it, it, it sounds to me like Fidelity has been in the Bitcoin business for so long that they even know how to time the cycles. Because you, you, you do the announcement when the hype and the price is high, but you don't open the door until the price is low again. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, would, that, I think that would be putting too much, too much faith in us. Uh, I think that, you know, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about cycles. I think that, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, is it, there's a question as to whether those cycles continue to persist and be as strong as they have been in the past, just as the block award becomes you know, less relevant over time. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the comment, I'll take the compliment, but I'm not too sure that we, we ought to take full credit for that. So what's your story? You said um, you come from, from a traditional finance background. Yeah. What brings you to Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, so, so I began my career trading. So I spent 17 years trading commodities and managing commodity trading businesses. Um, and uh, so I first, I first heard of Bitcoin in 2013, 2014, something like that. And I think pretty much like everybody, the first time they hear about it, I dismissed it. thought, okay, well, maybe it has a niche market for, um, you know, for dark web activity and kind of dismissed it at that. Did you have three touch points? 
What's that? Sorry. Yeah, the, it says the the rule is you need three three touch points. And like you, you dismiss it the first time, you dismiss it the, the, the third time, and the, the fourth time you say, "God damn it, I could have bought it so much earlier." <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think everybody who's involved in crypto now, Bitcoin now, um, you know, looks back and feels that they could have been you know multimillionaire several times over. But you know, that is the that is that is the that is you know dealing with a sort of an asset with um, exponential returns and. And, and asymmetry, um, you know, tends to do that. But yeah, so I, you know, it was it was raised to me actually by my uh, brother who, you know, is quite, you know, he's quite an interesting chap. He doesn't work in finance, but he's always been very attuned to shifts in technology. And so he he recommended I take a look at it. I dismissed it, did not. Uh, I ended up getting around to buying some in 2015. So I can remember, I think everybody can remember their first entry price, mine was $400. Um and, you know, and, and, and as a trader, that's one of the things that, you know, if you want to look at something, just take a position and then, you know, you'll have a, you'll, you'll sort of monitor market conditions, pricing going forward, you'll stay more tuned to the news and so on and so forth. So I took a small position, became more and more interested in it over the coming years. And then in 2017, I was running uh, commodities trading at Barclays Investment Bank. And we were starting to see this, this you know, significant run-up in prices. We entered the year in the top market cap of crypto, I think, was around $16 billion. Uh, you know, by the end of the year, it was around $800 billion. And at some point you know, in between, um, it was getting an enormous amount of mainstream press attention. Yes. And I went to my boss, who was running FIC, and said, you know, what is our stance here? What are we, um, what are we going to you know, do this? You know, who's working on it, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer was that nobody was looking at it. Nobody was working on it, which I thought was a mistake. So I elected to um, uh, run a small research team to explore what the role plays of an investment bank would be in this asset class. Um, and that was looking at uh, custody, um, you know, market making, you know, even um, you know, a little bit on the IBD side in terms of treasury management and so on and so forth. Um, and so that was how I got interested. And, you know, as everybody who gets into Bitcoin and crypto knows, once you go down the rabbit hole, it is very difficult to extricate yourself. And so that was really the, the birthplace of my career in, in digital assets. And how long until you, you were looking for a job within, within that environment? Uh, so I transitioned at Barclays uh, full-time into crypto um, Jan, Jan 2018, which was the absolute high of the market. And so it wasn't the best time trade of my career. <laughs> That's also but, one of the rules. You, you always right. have to have to, you know, buy, like buy in and take the risk, even if it's career risk at the top of the market. It's just too quick. You're... That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think almost the, you know, the bear markets are, are slightly easy now because there's a little less froth and fervor uh, you know, around and it's just a little easier to get on and build. So it's, um, it's, that's definitely transitioned over time as well. Fix the Money is brought to you by 21Bitcoin, the easy way to buy, sell, save, and send Bitcoin. 21Bitcoin is a Bitcoin-only app, not an exchange. There's no distractions. There's an individual savings plan, very low fees, first-class personal support, and a German bank account. Based in the Austrian Alps, It's available now throughout Europe. Download now using the code FIXTHEMONEY to get up to 20% off your fees over there on 21bitcoin.app. Not your keys, not your coins. You need a hardware wallet signing device. Check out the Bitbox O2. Swiss made, secure, beautiful, open source, Tor support, Bitcoin only, 
and an all-around outstanding product. Use the code FIXTHEMONEY on shiftcrypto.ch to get 5% off. That's the Bitbox O2 Fix the Money. Is there, I mean, you talked about cycles and obviously we don't know what the future brings. Do you, sure. do you think that there's a possibility that, that we are entering a new paradigm where central banks are actually, you know, um, tapering, where central banks are actually, you know, um, trying to make money scarcer and harder or currency um, and where, where Bitcoin enters another, another phase completely? Um, where we don't know where we're going, where we might even go lower, 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 and and just you know, interest might completely die out. Uh, it it won't disappear, obviously, but but is that a possibility? So, you know, so I, yeah, as you say, it's very hard to predict the future. I mean, the way that I look at this, and you know, I'm putting this is my personal view now, and maybe not necessarily the views of Fidelity, but you know, I think the. Um, I think that we're, we're in a period now that we haven't been in before. Like if you, you know, the, again, Genesis blog, January 2009, um, you know, we've been in a period of fairly loose, we've been in a, in a fairly loose monetary environment ever since. You know, now to your point, it's pretty clear that in, the central banks around the world are very serious about curtailing inflation and doing whatever they can in order to, in order to achieve that. And so in a persistent monetary tightening environment, we just haven't seen how the market will react. That said, you know, coming back to what we discussed earlier, I think if you look at the characteristics of Bitcoin relative to other stores of value, I think it holds up very well. So, you know, and you know, it's probably worth addressing the point, is Bitcoin a store of value? Like personally, I don't think it is a store of value right now. Like I like to think of Bitcoin more as a call option on its future use as a store of value. And that's to say that it it doesn't demonstrate store value properties right now at this point in time. You know, the way that I think about store value is the way that people think about gold, let's say. You know, in a period of high market stress, you might exit traditional financial assets and, you know, enter a position in gold in order to preserve purchasing power. I don't think that's how people are using Bitcoin right now. Now, again, I think that that speaks to the relative immaturity. You know, again, you know, gold has been around for thousands of years and being used as that store of value. Um, uh, it's had that store of value use case for that period of time. So it's very difficult to imagine that Bitcoin is going to go from, you know, having literally no market price in 2009 to being a multi-trillion dollar asset uh, 20 years later without some volatility on the way. And so I think that, you know, in my mind, if we look at the, the again, coming back, the relative characteristics of Bitcoin uh, to gold, I think that in my mind, it, it's, you know, it's pretty safe to say that it will occupy more and more of that use case in time. And the volatility will dampen out as we see greater and greater adoption and institutional interest. On the other hand, we do have a new generation of, of very, you know, digital minded people who would, maybe, right. who would never even think about buying gold, yeah. um, but who need something that they can use as a store of value, especially because if the market, if the markets are tightening, you know, you can also say bye-bye to your index funds. If, yeah. if, if, if there's a paradigm shift for 10 years, um, then there's not going to be uh, the, the, the returns that we're used to. I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the the sort of digitally minded, um, you know, new cohort of investors that's coming through. And I think that that's, you know, that's been one of the sticking points in adoption of some of these assets. I think that it's very difficult to people of a certain generation to understand that something can exist digitally um, and yet not, uh, it, it can exist purely digitally, but have a 
you know, demonstrable value. And, you know, like, you know, to give you an example, I probably spent five years too long buying CDs. Like why? Because I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that, you know, I wouldn't receive the actual disc and I wouldn't have the sleeve that I would never look at and the plastic container that always breaks and is really annoying. You know, and so I, I ended up buying CDs for five years too long. And I think that, you know, you speak to people who are, you know, in their early 20s, they spend most, you know, and they spend a good proportion of their lives online. You know, to, to them, you know, having, explaining to them that something can only as, exist digitally yet has value isn't, you know, that's not a leap. That's obvious. Um, you know, if you, you know, you have a clan and you're playing Call of Duty and you've kind of, you know, your online profile is probably one of the most valuable things to certain people that, um, that, that, that they own. And so I think that, you know, I think there is a certain generational thing here. And I think that that will, um, you know, as we see this younger cohort of investors come through the system and we're about to see one of the largest wealth generation, wealth transfer effects ever, I think that that will have uh, an impact on overall adoption as well. Do you have numbers in your head of the wealth transfer effects? I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the money going from the boomers to the millennials, Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. But do you, I mean, how much money are we talking about here? Uh, that's a good question. I don't have that off the top of my head. I've, I read somewhere it's like it's like 70 trillion. Is that possible? Uh, well, I mean, if you look at the sort of global wealth, I mean, global wealth is a couple hundred trillion, um, you know, and, you know, boomers have a, you know, a, a limited amount of time. Too much. Oh, no, they have, they, have, they, have, they have too little time, but too much money. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you because you said uh, it was your brother who, who, who told you about Bitcoin. Yeah. Is he the older or the younger one? Uh, he's older. I have to say that that's actually pretty impressive because because you are the finance brother, the finance bro, right? That's right. Uh, it would have been easy to say, "Come on, shut up. That's my thing. I know about my thing. You stick with your stick in your lane." He was fairly persistent in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. I gave you the abridged version. This this happened over over a course of a couple of years and many many conversations. But yes. He was persistent. It happens with Bitcoiners. That's right. That's right. Is he is he like on the IT side? Does he know his way around computers? Uh, no, not really. I, but as I say, he's uh, you know he lives a, a relatively alternative lifestyle. Um, but he's just always been a, a very keen adopter of new technology. That's interesting. I, 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 it's one of my my pet peeves to look into. You know, where do the really early Bitcoiners come from? You know, cypherpunks, right. like programmers, coders, sure. pe people who know look at the thing. And didn't know it works, and that yep. that that uh, intrigues them because I knew about Bitcoin. I think I don't know, maybe 2010, 2011, um, but I dismissed it um, also three times at least. You know, right. I was I was a huge gold bug. I I didn't um, think it would it would be possible to have this thing. You know, um, and because I didn't, I wasn't able to look at the code. I understand the economics, but I still, I, you know. So you're still a gold bug. Ah, well, in my heart, I will always be a gold bug. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> but but um, I do see, I mean, absolutely, I absolutely see um, that on paper, Bitcoin is superior to gold. Um, and I think you said um, in the beginning, 10 times, yeah. times better. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you want to take money, let's say you, you have to leave your country. You know? Sure. Um, how, many, how, many, how many bars of gold can you take, you know? How useful is it when you have to bribe the, the border guard to get into a safer country? You know? yep. If it's a young border guard, if he has a Bitcoin wallet, that's very easy because he also knows that what he gets is the real deal. Because with gold, you also don't really know. You know, There's fakes coming out of China. Sure. 
Um, so, so all of these things, you know, play together. If, if, if the guy you're doing business with does not know about gold, he's not going to take it. Yep. That's fair. And that's on the street, of course. I mean, that's hopefully something that we never have to deal with, but, um, and all gold doesn't have the, the digital network effect. Um, but also there wouldn't be any Bitcoin without gold, like literally, because you need gold for the machines, for the miners and for the, for, for the cell phones that we use, but also for the idea, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, but would we, you know, would we have coalesced around a different store of value if it wasn't gold? I mean, gold doesn't have, I mean, gold is just the, I mean, I think Mike Green does a, a sort of good job of explaining this, but, you know, really, if you look at the characteristics of gold that made it an optimal store of value, it's, you know, it's it's just, it's coincidence that it's gold. You know, it has a low enough melting point that you can actually melt it and divide it into sort of smaller units, it has a high enough melting point that you can put it in your pocket and it doesn't end up liquid. Uh, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't react with anything, so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you, and then it's, it's, it's scarce enough that, um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's reasonably, you know, it's scarce enough that you can't have a very high inflation rate, no matter what the price and so on and so forth. And if you take all that, really the sort of, you know, you eliminate enough of the periodic table that you end up with, with gold and silver and it, you know, gold is just slightly, you know, gold is a lot less, uh, a lot more scarce than silver is. And so I think that, you know, it's just a, um, it's a coincidence of chemistry that gold has ended up being the dominant store of value. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's still a commodity. It's still used 10 to 12% for real commodity uses. And then there's always the question, you know, the 50% of gold that's used as jewelry, what is it? Is it, is it, is it a luxury item? Is it savings? It it depends on where you buy it and and how much the yeah the margin it, is. I, so yeah and when you you know and people make this argument that you know gold has an intrinsic value onto its industrial uses but you're right like the it's actually de minimis relative to its uses as store of value and I would argue that jewelry is just a store of value that you wear on your person most of um, the time in west in in the west not so much. Um, but you know, people buying gold jewelry in the West, you know, people buying gold jewelry, jewelry in the West. I mean, you know, it's not cause it's shiny. Tinfoil is shiny. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's really because it, it costs something. It's, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a demonstration that you can afford something. And so I think that, you know, if you, if you stripped out the use cases of gold that aren't industrial, um, yeah, the price of gold would catastrophically collapse. That would be the demonetization or the de, the de store valueization yeah. um, of gold. But there is, I mean, there's we use real estate as store of value. Sure, we re- use stocks as store of value massively since the seventies. Yeah, um, we use art, we use sneakers, wine, you name it. Yeah. So basically, if you have a new store of value, this is not. We're not only talking about gold. Bit, if Bitcoin really is what you say it is, it will take capital out of all these um, these asset classes. Yeah, I think I think that's probably fair. I think that collectibles is maybe you know when you're talking about art and you know uh, vintage cars and so on and so forth. I would say that you know there is an argument to say that you can enjoy those as much as they are a a store value. But fair yes, enough. I take your point. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I personally, when when the when the crisis hit in in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand seven, um, there was a long. Like, discussion especially in europe about you know we need to reconnect the real economy to the financial economy right and and i think bitcoin could be that because because you take out that store of value the speculation maybe at least partly for especially real estate i mean yeah. it's completely non nonsensical that there is speculation in real estate while well people can't afford 
to live anywhere anymore with their families. Yeah, is that speculation or is that a function of, you know, far too loose monetary policy for far too long? Exactly. And that's what that's our last topic. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it is a function. Yes, exactly. It is a function of, of far too loose monetary policy. But but now with Bitcoin we have we have a new tool to, you know, escape the inflationary hell of central banks, if you want to say if you want to call right. it that. Um, uh, do you I mean and that's my my question, I mean, you said, you, in the beginning you said um, store value, but if that, that means that we, we are entering a new paradigm where people can literally take their capital and leave. Christine Lagarde actually said it. If there is an escape, people will use it. Sure. Um, so do you think that from the perspective of somebody who works for a huge asset manager, but one that is one of the very few that are, actively engaged with Bitcoin and crypto at the moment. Um, do, you, do you think that from a regulatory uh, standpoint, do you think that, I don't know, basically can it be stopped still? Or, or are we talking about, about a fight that's already won? So, I think you know, can it be stopped? I think that, you know, it would be difficult even with a... So could it be stopped? Probably not. Could it be significantly hampered and its and its development and adoption significantly slowed probably what is the likelihood of that occurring now i would say that you know it's getting less and less with every year that goes by and i think that you know you know you look at the us that probably has um you know the most global influence to drive such an agenda um you know look the the us did phenomenally well out of web2 development um you know most of the largest web2 companies are us companies so they have you know done extremely well fostering innovation and not turning it away and so i think that you know that yeah you know, and, and if you look at the sort if you look at the um you know now if you look at the development of crypto like most of the largest crypto companies in the world um are based in the us and so i think that there's uh you know there's less and less incentive to try and um you know, to ban or to throw regulatory hurdles in the way. Um, you know, now, look, if we'd have rewound the clock, say, 10 years, I think that none of that existed. And I, I think that, you know, back then it would have been a lot easier and a lot more palatable. Uh, now it would result in the destruction of, you know, tens of billions of value that have been built in the US. And I think that that would, you know, that's a, a very... It'd be a very difficult thing to do at this point. So, you know, is it impossible? No. Uh, is it likely? I think it's, you know, probably vanishingly likely at this point. Now, are there other state actors that, you know, we've seen China bans in China and so on and so forth. I think the, you know, you know, we've seen India flip flop on this topic. Um, you know, and certainly, uh, you know, other state actors have have tried to ban or slow the adoption. Is that likely to win out over time if the rest of the world? Um, you know, is not taking that stance. I think that, you know, it's a losing battle. Where are you from? I, uh, grew, well, so I was born in Scotland, grew up in the Isle of Man, lived in the US for a little while, lived in Switzerland for a little while. Uh, I currently live in London. So you're based in London now. And, and because what you said is, is totally true. As long as the US does not, does not ban it, even as long as the U.S. supports it, you know, yeah. um, I don't see any any way anybody in the world, especially in the free so-called free world, um, can do anything about it. I mean, the Europeans, yeah. 
the European Parliament has a lot of people who have a lot of opinions that are not very well informed and then they come up with very stupid laws and we will have this problem for as long as the European Parliament exists. But but even in, even in Europe, the regulation that's coming out, like from our perspective, is very... Um, you know, look, I think I think that you need certain regulations in place. You need to be able to protect consumers and you need to be able to give clarity to businesses who want to operate in this space. Absolutely. And I think if you look at Mika, the markets and crypto assets, which is the you know draft regulatory framework that has now been approved, the final text of which we haven't yet received, um, you know, we think that that looks very positive, you know, for crypto adoption in Europe going forward. It gives larger institutions the regulatory clarity they need to operate in this space. But they try to like smuggle in a a proof of work ban. They did, yeah. Which and like like Gigi says, is like a failure to understand proof of work is a failure to understand Bitcoin, and a failure to understand Bitcoin must be a failure to understand crypto. And if you if you ban proof of, I mean, who is going to work and like set up their shop in a in a in a in an economic region where they are trying to ban proof of work? Even if you don't even do like Bitcoin mining, there is no Bitcoin mining in Europe anyway. It's too expensive. But yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I mean, fortunately, it didn't make it through, um, and. You know, yeah. Fortunately, it didn't make it through, and so, like, you know, you know, the all, all avenues were explored, and the and the and the most sensible one was, you know, adopted at the end of the day. Um, I think also, you know, again, if we look across the pond to the US, um, you know, there, you know, they have more of a uh, an issue with regulatory clarity because we have, you know, here in Europe, we're fortunate enough to have a definition around what a security is. Over in the US, you have a test, and so, you know, it's not clear. You know, a Bitcoin is. Uh, you know, is well understood to be a commodity. Everything else, who knows whether that's a commodity or security. And that definitely causes, you know, us as an asset manager, um, some concern in, in you know, wh- how we can build our business in a regulatory compliant fashion. Do you, if do, we you think it's, do you think it's still possible that the SEC will come out and say everything but Bitcoin is a security and, and, and trade needs to shut down tomorrow I mean, at 12? Cer- certainly, you know, those comments have been made by the SEC. I mean, well, sorry, would they, well, take that in two parts. One is that certainly they have made, you know, they have made comments to that effect that everything other than Bitcoin could be a security. Um, whether or not that translates into enforcement action, I think remains to be seen. How about the UK? My last question, how about the UK? Yeah. The UK has 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 some commitment to, yeah. to be the crypto country of the world or something. I, <laughs> yes. I don't know, but there there has been like a crypto hub, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Clear signal. So what, what yeah. can we expect from, from post Brexit Britain, uh, post Brexit UK? Yeah, so so there definitely has been, you're right. You know, Rishi Sunak, um, who was Chancellor at the time, came out and said that he wanted the UK to be a crypto hub. Uh, and, you know, they were even promoting things like, uh, the, you know, they were looking for the Royal Mint to issue an NFT and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I think the, the devil is always in the detail. Obviously, we've had some political change in the UK as well. Um, you know, and so I think we need to see how that shakes out. And so in terms of details of implementation of that vision, um, you know, they remain uh, pretty scant. But certainly, you know, the uh, it, it looks like the desire is there and we're very encouraged by what we're hearing. You know, we need to wait and see what the details actually look like. All right. Chris, what's the Bitcoin price going to be in one year? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, I don't think that I don't think I think a year I think over a year it's a very difficult, you know, where of the view that we are still at the beginning stages of this adoption of adoption of this asset class in general. And we remain positive on both adoption and price going forward. But I think putting a, a sort of price on a 12-month or a 12-month forecast, that's a, a fool's errand. 
thank you so much for taking the time to thank sit down with me. me. This was this was um, this was great. I think we could sit here for two more hours, and we might do it at some point. But um, let's just we, we cut here. Have a great evening. Thank you very much indeed. For more content like this, visit fixthemoney.substack.com.